The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Well, Mark Twain said that truth is stranger than fiction, but it is because fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities. Truth isn't. Uh, I've never believed this statement to be more true than after hearing the story of our guest today, chef and cancer survivor Hans Rufert. With his career on the rise, Hans was a contestant on the 2005 Next Food Network star, reaching the final three. Just two weeks after taping the finale for the show, the culinary sensation was diagnosed with stage three stomach cancer and given a 2% chance of survival. His cancer journey has included 11 surgeries, chemotherapy, radiation, a series of brain infections, the removal of his stomach, and 95% of his esophagus. Known as the chef without a stomach, Hans is the author of the cookbook Eat Like There's No Tomorrow and the producer of several TV cooking shows. Welcome to the show, Hans. Thank you so much for having me, or what's left of me. (laughs) (laughs) well first things first Hans uh tell us how you're feeling these days after that uh little bit of a rough uh intro and we're going to talk about your uh your journey a little bit but let's start with the present day sure well I uh I appreciate you listening to my own bio as you were talking I believe it or not I'm sort of doing the math I mean depending on how you count them I think I'm up to like 15 surgeries now not that Mm. anybody's even you know score uh Mm. but I always sort of half believe that much like at Starbucks, like the, the the 13th one is free. You know, there's like a punch card. I kind of thought, well, maybe when I reach a dozen surgeries, the next one would be free. But I'm here to say that is not the case. Not the um, case. Good to know for the record. <laughs> yes, yes. So anybody that's trying to, you know, catch up to my club, I don't I don't advise it. But um, anyway, no, I'm, I'm doing okay. I mean, I, I think, you know, you, you find your new normal. And, you know, is it, uh, is it as grand as it once was? Yeah, of course not. I mean, I'm... I am missing, you know, chunks of my body, and uh, so there's always going to be difficulties that are associated with that. But all things considered, I mean, that's pretty amazing that I am able to do what I, what I do, and and um, you know, how much energy I have, considering how much of me is no longer with me, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I have found that I'm sure you've heard this too that. Mm-hmm. When you start complaining, all it does is inspire other people to start complaining, and you end up realizing that that doesn't do anything. So uh, I try to, you know, keep all that to an absolute minimum. So I think uh, in context, I'm doing fantastic. 
Wow, great, great, great to hear it, and uh, and uh, great attitude certainly, and an inspiration uh, to so many, Hans. Um, so let's let's go back in time uh, a little bit, and uh, I understand that you went to the emergency room, uh, and you thought you were having a heart attack. Yeah, and, you uh, know, that's you, what's so, yeah. so odd. I mean, I, th- I think I have an atypical gastric cancer story, but sometimes those mm. atypical stories will help other people because you would think with gastric cancer or, or really sort of by the book, you would think reflux, uh, digestion issues, bowel issues, you know, it's, it's a GI cancer uh, and it's a, it's a GI disease, but I really didn't have too much of that going on. I did have occasional mm. heartburn but nothing that I wouldn't simply chalk off to stress, especially at that time in my life. You know, here I was, a guy from Jasper, Georgia, which is about the size of a shoebox. Uh, it's, in, you know, it's about an hour north of, it, of Atlanta. And um, for me to be plucked out of my normal life and then deposited into Manhattan uh, for this crazy, you know, uh, sort of almost month-long competition where you're sequestered in a hotel uh, kind of in the shadow of ground zero. and I mean, it, it was a very stressful time in my life. Fun. I mean, absolutely, don't get me wrong, yeah. but it was, it was stress. Yeah. So any of my, what I would have said, you know, kind of symptoms, I would have said was just, just stress, like nothing I would um, say was above and beyond the normal. So, yeah, when I went into the hospital, I was doing some production work for a little local television station. I um, I got picked to be like the uh, the local news guy, um, which if you know me, that's just such a weird thing. I mean, but anyway, <laughs> I, uh, at that point in my life, my sister had just passed from, from breast cancer, and mm. I had had this, I've been in the restaurant business my entire life, and at that point I thought, you know, life's short, especially having witnessed my sister's uh, struggles and, and eventually, eventually passing from, from her disease, I thought, you know, this opportunity is coming up. I'm, I'm going to jump and, and take it. So I was working at a local television station, and I was editing a show that day and um, was just so confused all of a sudden. I, I was trying to click the left mouse button with my right hand, which is something you do every single day, but for some reason I couldn't make myself do it. Like I, I was just having this block, like I, can't, I couldn't figure out, wait a second, why am I using my right hand to click the left button? And so then I brought my left hand into the equation, I thought, wait, this is totally wrong. Uh, and I just got so confused, and uh, receptionist at the, at the company there noticed that I, was, I didn't look well, I was acting strange, and hmm. so I said, you know, I think I'm just going to drive home, or, or maybe even just pop into the hospital and get my blood checked or something. Something's not quite right. Yeah. And she offered to take me to the hospital. I said, no, nah, I'll be fine. Typical sort of stubborn German, you know, there's an expression, um, you, can tell, you can always tell a German, but you can't tell him anything. So, um, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. So I, and I'm just a half German, so, but still stubborn enough. So on my way to the hospital, I started getting tunnel vision. The left side of my body started going numb. I, um, I dialed my wife, but had a hard time actually speaking to her. Uh, I could hear her, and I knew what I wanted to say, but I just couldn't make the words come out, or, or when they were, they were apparently slurred, sounding. And so pretty much everything, textbook, heart attack symptoms, or even strokes, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. symptoms. So, uh, you know, to, to condense the story, that by the time that they got me in the, uh, in the ambulance, got the IV started, that was kind of their assumption, too. You know, this is, you know, here I was uh, a week shy of my 33rd birthday, so 32 years old, and had just come in this stressful situation. They're thinking, this guy's too much stress, working too much, and he's having a stroke or a heart attack. But mm. when we got to the hospital and the first doctor did the blood work, uh, blood work is way off, and 
uh, it was right at the, the sort of changing of the guards, and the doctor was about to discharge me with the diagnosis that I needed to eat more red meat. Uh, said I was anemic, I needed to eat more red meat, and was ready to, to check me out and send me home. And lucky for me, again, as I said, it was a changing of the guards. The doctor yeah. coming in looked at that blood work and said, whoa, you've got the, your blood level is that of an infant. And, uh, you know, at the time I was probably 220 pounds, six foot four, and I had the, you know, sort of the blood iron hemoglobin of an infant. Wow. And so she said, you've got to be bleeding internally. And so did a quick scope, and there at the junction, the GI junction, which is a pretty common place for, for these gastric cancers to, to occur, was a tumor that they estimate being uh, two years old at the time. Wow. So I had had cancer now for two years, um, unknowing. And then, of course, like I said, once you realize that that's what it is, then you sort of, you know, hindsight being what it is, you start thinking, oh, that makes sense. This is why I was having, I was yeah. so dizzy and I was having nosebleeds and I was having, um, you know, those kind of issues. And it was because my, I always had a bleeding tumor and my blood level mm. was so low that the body was just sort of shutting down. Uh, and that's why I was having those heart attack style symptoms. So, so, uh, so then, yeah. Fine. So then, what did they what did they tell you about you know diagnosis, treatment? Uh, you know, how did they sort of get to the heart of things? Well, I tell you, I you know, as, as naive as it sounds, first first let me say, having lost my my sibling, my only sibling yeah. to cancer, yeah. I somehow thought like lightning doesn't strike twice. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it, that doesn't make any sense at all. I know, but for some reason. It's almost like I, in the back of my mind, thought that, well, since she got it, then I wouldn't. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, the, I don't un- know like the universe, the universe yeah. wouldn't be so cruel, right? It yeah. doesn't make any sense. And she was diagnosed at age 27, and then wow. here I was, you know, uh, age 30, 32, and here I'm diagnosed. And anyway, and, and I had gone to the doctor after my sister passed and said, look, there's so much cancer in my family, breast cancer mainly. And I said, is there any sort of scope or scan that I could have done? And they said, you know what, that would be like looking for a needle in a haystack that we don't even know where the haystack is. And yeah. so they sort of just, you know, and that's what you want the doctor to say. You want their doctor to tell you, don't worry about it. Um, but anyway, so, but had they taken me seriously and just done a simple CT, they would have seen that tumor at the GI junction. But, um, but anyway, we, we quickly started talking about gastric cancer. I didn't know, I'd never known anybody with gastric cancer. Um, I found out later that my best friend's father uh, had passed away from gastric cancer, and I knew he died of cancer. I just didn't know. No one ever said the word stomach cancer or gastric cancer. Mm-hmm. And so I had a lot of learning to do, and luckily my oncologist that I was paired with uh, at my local regional hospital um, said to me, look, you need to go someplace where they've done this not tens of times, not hundreds of times, but thousands of times. Yeah. And so that is what uh, I immediately went to MD Anderson, and um, from the beginning they started talking um, partial gastrectomy, removing half of my stomach which was the original course of action. We removed the top half of my stomach and the lower part of my esophagus, uh, which we jokingly called my stomophagus, uh, which sounds like a Sesame Street character, but, um, but anyway. Um, so for the first five years past surgery, I had half a stomach and half of the esophagus. Um, but lots of complications. Um, uh, at that point, the protocol was to do surgery first, followed by chemo and radiation, uh, but... As my story attests, sometimes the chemo and radiation does more damage uh, to the newly, uh, you know, the, the, new, the new surgery section. So the surgery that I had was being eroded from the chemo and radiation, which was supposed to be helping keep future cancers at bay. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, um, go ahead. yeah, I was going to say, Hans, so we've got a couple minutes until our um, 
until our first break here. But I uh, I understand that um, that you were told at at some point that you really only had a two percent chance of survival. Who told you that? When did they tell you that? And gosh, what was going through your head at that point? Well, I you know um, skipping ahead a bit when things started um, failing. My, uh, you know, and, and three times I've had the conversation where the doctor said, look, you need to get your affairs in order. So three times we sort of had the speech that this is the end. And, uh, and again, we'll talk about the, the brain infections as we get past the break. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, they originally said that I had a, about a 10% chance of survival. Once I got beyond and we felt like we were in the clear, my oncologist, who I dearly love, said, you know, I kind of just uh, played with that number a little bit because that sounded a lot better. 10% sounded a lot better than 2%, but he said, but the tumor being where it was and as aggressive as it was and the lymph nodes that were involved, you know, he said I would have done more, you know, about a 2%. So it was in hindsight that he told me that, but uh, knowing me now, I think he knows that if he had said 2%, it would have just inspired me to think if somebody, and I'll just, you know, I, here's the way I think of it, and we'll expand on this, but I think of any wall is 90% wall and 10% door. And if all you're thinking about is that 90% wall, you're going to hit the wall. So I thought, well, somebody had to walk through the door, even if it's a 2% door. Somebody had to get through that door in order for that to even be a possibility. So as long as I know there's a door and I know how skinny it is, that's what I'm aiming for. So that was sort of my mental, uh, you know, that was my mindset as we moved mm-hmm. into that, uh, that journey. Well, I'm sure your uh, doctor was probably pretty happy to hear uh, about that approach that you were determined uh, determined to take. So uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer, and we're talking with Hans Rufert, um, the chef with no stomach. Hans was a contestant on the 2005 Next Food Network star. He reached the uh, final three in uh, that show, and he is sharing with us today his incredible story, his incredible journey uh, through his uh, uh, very complicated uh, cancer experience, and I just I love that you have such a great uh, sense of humor, Hans, through all of this. We're going to take a quick break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Don't go away. We're going to be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. 
This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by AstraZeneca and Lilly Oncology. I'm Kim Tibaldo from the Cancer Support Community, and with us today is Hans Rufert. Hans was raised in one of Georgia's landmark restaurants, the Woodbridge Inn, in 2005. He finished uh, third in the first season of the Next Food Network Star. Two weeks later, he was diagnosed with stomach cancer. Doctors removed his stomach and 95% of his esophagus in an effort to save his life. He is the author of Eat Like There's No Tomorrow and has produced and starred in TV cooking shows, including Hans Cooks the South. So Hans, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, uh, growing up in, in a restaurant. Was it, was it, that a, was it uh, becoming a chef a passion of yours? Was it something you always loved? Oh my God, no, I hated it. And, uh, you know, it's just so funny because my kids now, I have three children, uh, one's 17, one's 13, and one's two. Um, and it's so funny because they are in that sort of stage right now that I was at that time that they appreciate that they are making a little pocket money and that they get to, you know, work when they want to and they have certain benefits. But, you know, it's the family business. When it's time to work, it's time to work. So, um, when my sister and I were growing up, we lived above the restaurant. I mean, literally, it's an old railroad hotel, and the, uh, there are six guest rooms above the restaurant, but my family converted that into our living space uh, from 1976 until about 1996. We lived upstairs. So um, we would be upstairs playing our Atari 2600, and you know they would run upstairs. This is before pagers, before cell phones, before you could even pause your video game. Um, so we'd be playing Space Invaders, and they would say, oh, we're getting our butt kicked, we need help in the restaurant. And so we'd have to run down, sometimes in our pajamas, uh, to, you know, help shuck oysters or, you know, mm. make salads or, or whatever, you know, if we got busy. And, uh, you know, there was sometimes you'd think, God, do I, I don't want to, I've almost got a high score, and now I've got to run, <laughs> run away from my video game. <laughs> but uh, so, like anything, I think all of us have to rebel against our parents for a time. And uh, so I wanted nothing to do with with this, and I, I wanted to be in, uh, a writer, I wanted to be in uh, game, in fact, I even had a, a game published in, in the mid-90s and got to do some traveling with that, and so I thought that was the route I was going to go, 
But um, my dad had a rare kidney disease, uh, not a cancer, but just a kidney disease that was taking his kidneys, and we thought that we were going to lose him uh, in the early 90s. Now, he was able to live, live until 2010. He had two kidney transplants, and he was a hell of a fighter, too. But I wanted to learn how to cook because I knew I, I was living with one of the best chefs in the region, if not the entire southeast. I mean, he'd come from Germany. He'd escaped um, from East Germany. He had a wonderful story. His life story was featured on CNN and just a neat man all the way around and inspiration. Mm. But he was, I didn't want him to be my boss, but I, at the same time I thought, I don't even know how to cook an egg because my entire life I was so spoiled. We lived upstairs. If we were hungry, we just came downstairs and ordered dinner. I mean, you know, <laughs> like most kids, right? <laughs> oh, sure, so, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I had French onion soup pretty much every night of my life from age, you know, four to age 17 or 18. Um, but anyway, I, uh, I wanted nothing to do with it until I, my dad was doing unwell and I wanted to get in the kitchen just to learn it, not so much as a career, but to impress my girlfriend, uh, who is now my <laughs> wife. Uh, so I guess that sort of worked. But, it worked, um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it, it, uh, it's one of those sort of a deals that once I was in that position, I just fell in love with it, and, and I, I think just through osmosis, I had picked up some things, and so it's not like I was starting from ground zero. I, I had some, I kind of knew what went well together, and um, very quickly just fell in love with it. It was so, it was such an outlet for something that I, I you know, was inside me that I didn't know. And so, and the, I guess the thing is, it's always ironic, people assume that I changed my cooking style because of my... Uh, my illness, but that's not really the case at all. I've, I've always been sort of a healthy cook. I've always believed that we are what we eat. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't dealt a very fair hand genetically, but I, um, I still, you know, was the guy that was going to Whole Foods before, before Whole Foods was that popular, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I fell in love with it. And, uh, you know, since my illness, I don't have the strength and stamina to be the chef. Yeah. So I've really fallen in love with the, the glad-handing side of the business now, too, the hospitality side, being able to, you know, you think that if somebody's celebrating their 75th wedding anniversary we've had, we've had 95th birthdays, mm. and uh, of all the restaurants they could go, they come to ours. And you, that's mm. not just a random choice. That's an honor. I mean, that's something that I, I take very personally and very seriously. So I'm, I love this industry now. But as a kid, forget it. I could not forget get away it. from forget that. Forget it. <laughs> well, so so so, talk to us a little bit about how your sort of relationship to food, you know, kind of changed over the course of your illness, and and sure. what does a guy without a stomach eat these days? I, you know, what's so funny about that is, you know, there I, I mentor a lot of folks now, and um, or coach, whatever word you want to say, when somebody's you know freshly diagnosed. It's kind of a scary, scary thing, and you know, of course, it's, I say kind of, it's one of the scariest things you'll ever hear, and we immediately turn to the Internet now, and the Internet, you know, is full of stories. Sadly, people don't always post the good stories. You know, there's so much negative, you know, so you, you end up following a thread, and um, by the time you get to an end, you end up in an obituary, and I realize that all of our stories end in an obituary, no matter what it is, but, you know, in this context especially, there weren't enough positive stories. And so I, I very early on started uh, keeping a journal, and in that journal I also kept a food journal, which was the best piece of advice anyone ever gave me was to really mm. track every single thing that I put into my body. And because we don't sometimes count the little, especially around Halloween, the little you know one-inch Snickers bars or the or whatever it is, we just eat those things mindlessly, not really mm. counting those as food. But mm-hmm. those things have the the uh, the potential to, you know, make our blood sugar go up or down or, or our enzymes or 
you know, there's so, it's such a crazy relationship. So when I had a stomach, that relationship, or let's say for a quote-unquote normal person, that relationship happens at such a later time that we sometimes forget that that's the thing that's making us tired or lethargic or, or on the context, or the flip side, I should say, that's the thing that's giving us energy. But now with no stomach, that connection between what I eat and what I feel is instant. And as redundant and as elementary as this sounds, I, I tell people that if I eat greasy, heavy, overcooked, you know, foods, I feel greasy and heavy and overcooked almost immediately. I have to take mm-hmm. a nap. Like if I go through a drive-through just for convenience, I sometimes have to. I'm not kidding. Pull into a parking lot and take a 20-minute nap because my blood sugar crashes. I feel, you know, just I feel greasy and just unwell. But on the flip side, if I eat these fresh, vibrant, healthy foods, I feel fresh, vibrant, and healthy. And again, you know, sometimes people are you know, coming to my classes. I've got one that I'm teaching tomorrow. And they start, they get their pencil out, they start to take notes, and they look at me like, that's the most redundant thing I've ever heard in my life. But when they really think about how they eat and mm. the, you know, the things, one of my doctors had the best analogy. And he said, look, you know, you look like a diesel still, but you're more of an electric hybrid now. If you mm. try putting diesel into an electric car's, you know, fuel tank, if it has one, it's not going to run. And so yeah. you can't put the same fuel in your machine, in your engine, and expect it to run the way that it used to. Um, so it, it's really now almost like an injection of nutrition. When I eat things like uh, millet and quinoa and amaranth, uh, you know, chickpeas, uh, fresh greens, I tell people I don't cook my vegetables, I threaten them. Uh, you know, I just kind of get the pan hot, give a little sear to it, turn the pan off just where they get a little bit of that, you know, caramelization or a little blister to the greens, but they're still, they don't go above 140 degrees, so they still have those digestive enzymes which are in those raw fruits and vegetables. So I, um, when I eat like that, I feel fantastic. And you can hear in my voice, I have a ton of energy. Um, yeah. But I get to make that decision every single day. I get to decide, how do I want to feel? Do I want to have energy and, and focus and clarity today? Or do I want to, do I want to be sleepy and lethargic and, and feel just blah? And, and, uh, and, I and let me ask you this. I can't genetics, but I can affect that. Every day yeah. I get to decide that. Yeah, yeah. And and let me ask you this, Hans. How have you held on to this sort of sense of humor through this incredible ordeal that you've been through? I think I know I know one of your jokes is that uh, no one should trust a, a skinny chef. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Well, you <laughs> that's always hear that. Never trust a skinny chef, right? So, and the, and the um, stomophagus, I love that one, too. But, uh, you know, is that is it just is it in you? Is it a decision that you made? Is it? Uh, tell me I about that. It's a little bit of both. And, you know, my dad came to this country, didn't speak a word of English, and he learned English by watching the Three Stooges. And that is not a joke. He absolutely <laughs> came to Chicago in 1963, 64, and uh, he would get off work around midnight, and he said the only thing they played at that time on the two or three black and white channels was the uh, was either the news or it was the Three Stooges. And the Three Stooges, you can understand, even without language, because it's so much, you know, it's so visual slapstick. But... So his sense of humor was so fantastic, and because English wasn't his primary language, he really used the English language once he mastered it like a scalpel. I mean, he could absolutely just, you know, play on words and spoonerisms and alliteration. So I absolutely inherited or was, you know, that's a bit of nature and nurture, was raised in this very sort of Monty Python, Benny Hill, Three Stooges sort of a environment. So, I, you know, that's, that is one given. But I have also realized that, I'm a big fan of Zig Ziglar. He's a motivational speaker who talks about what laughing does to your body. The, 
the uh, endorphins, norepinephrine, the dopamine, all the things that happen to your body when you laugh, when you smile. Even if it's fake, if you just, when you wake up in the morning and you're feeling kind of glum, if you force yourself to laugh out loud for 15 seconds, number one, you're going to feel ridiculous. Um, but you, you will absolutely notice your heart rate goes up, your, your mind, uh, you know, those natural endorphins, um, those kick in. Like your body doesn't care if it's a real response or a, or a forced response. It has the same effect. So that's one of those things that my wife mm-hmm. and I both just kind of, we would sometimes make our oncologist laugh when he was even delivering terrible news. We would say, okay, well, I guess I need to, you know, think about canceling that book club membership or what, you know, something, you know, something goofy, <laughs> you know, would somebody else have said it to me, you would think, well, that's, that's kind of dark. It's kind of, a ga- what do you call it? Gallows humor. Yeah. But it, it helps you sort of process it, put it into perspective and honestly make it more pun intended digestible. Um, <laughs> when you're dealing with these life and death things, I mean, it, you can only control so much of it and boohooing about it isn't going to change it. And, uh, there's plenty of time for boohooing, and we've done that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that's a wrong response, but for me, yeah. that was the only way that we could really process this unbelievably dark, dangerous, scary yeah. time in our life was to just, you know, yeah. um, just try to, try to parse it into something that we could, we could handle. Yeah. Nice, nice. Um, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking with Hans Rufert. Uh, he is a chef with no stomach. We um, have a lot to uh, hear from Hans, a lot to learn about his story uh, and his journey. And, and Hans, in the next segment, I, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about why you've been so open uh, sure. about your journey and, and uh, you know, re- really that, that sharing and the connection that you're making with other patients and, and survivors and why that's so important to you. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Insight Corporation, Novo Cure, and Taiho Oncology. I'm Kim Tebaldo, and our guest today is chef and author Hans Rufert. Known as the chef without a stomach, Hans has endured uh, now nearly 15 surgeries, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, since his diagnosis with stomach cancer. And despite this arduous experience, Hans continues to share his love of food. He is the author of the book, Eat Like There's No Tomorrow, and is produced and starred in several TV uh, cooking shows. You know, um, Hans, I just, uh, you know, we, we work with a lot of cancer patients. Everybody has to face the disease, how they choose to do that. And some folks are, you know, a little more private and rather keep to themselves. And some are, uh, are, are out there sharing their story and, and talking about it and connecting with others. Tell me about your approach, why you've chosen to be so public about your uh, cancer experience and really, you know, how you are turning that into something special. Well, you know, I, I do a lot of public speaking these days, and I, um, you know, it's it's funny that some people say that they, um, public speaking is actually their number one fear, even above dying, which I think was Mark Twain or somebody said that most people feel they would they would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy, you know, which is kind of a messed up thing. But I um, I was in debate in high school, and so I'm used to standing in front of people and talking. But when my sister was going through cancer, she was very private very bitter, very angry, and she had every right to be. And I'm, I'm not, it sounds a bit like I'm faulting her, and I'm, I'm not. Because, mm-hmm. again, you have to do this in the way that makes sense to you. And right. she had just gotten married when she was diagnosed, and so pretty much the chance of the family was removed and, uh, you know, had a bright, bright future with, um, with a big um, Home Depot, actually, and was, was just doing great. And then all of a sudden, all of that was yanked away. And so she had every right to be... Um, Upset, and quite honestly, so do I. I mean, I think if I were a bitter, angry person, there's not a soul who would go, "What's that guy's problem?" Because I've, you know, I've been through the ringer. Mm-hmm. But I watched Sonya, and I just, I just thought and said, even to my wife, "Man, if I ever have something like that, I know exactly how I'm not going to do it." Because I could, you know, mm-hmm. from from that outside perspective, I couldn't tell her that, nor would I tell her that. You know, it wasn't my sure. place to, sure. to sort of say, "You're doing this wrong." Because how how would I know? But you know, once this sort of became a reality and I was, you know, initiated into this uh, sometimes horrible club, I, um, I just knew that, look, I've seen how that way works. And, uh, again, it was my wife, Amy, who suggested I start keeping a live journal, which then turned into a blog, blog post or whatever. The word was still kind of new. I didn't know what they were, people were saying when they were saying blog. I was like, what is that? But <laughs> I, uh, I just took to it, and I, I've always loved writing, and I've all of a sudden had like 40,000 people that were following my story. And um, I don't do that as much as I used to on the blog format, but I still do the public speaking because 
you always find that person who said, you know, we couldn't find anybody that had survived this. And, and sadly, gastric cancer is still, um, you know, worldwide, it's like number three. You know, uh, mm. it's a killer. And uh, there are too many times that someone's story ends too soon. So I thought, but look, if, if I made it, you know, there's no reason that someone else doesn't have the opportunity or the chance of making it. And I wanted to make sure that they understood that this isn't an op- this is an option. You know, surviving it is an option uh, because there weren't that many stories out there. So we started going down that road, and I um, I've been invited to be on a few television shows. I was on the, the show The Doctors, and it was a lot of fun, and, and it was really interesting because I had never seen, after my total gastrectomy, um, I had, as we mentioned, two brain infections that figured out that my gut was leaking into my lung and bacteria was communicating from my lung to my brain. They thought it was mm. metastatic um, stomach cancer in my brain, mm. but it turned out being an infection. That whole story is, would be worthy of a medical drama mm. on its own. But anyway, first time I had 10 infections, the second time I had 16 uh, the size of golf balls. And I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how old I was. Uh, so, again, that, that story aside, it's just crazy. So I was able to be on the doctors and talk about this experience, and... Here I was, and I was laughing and making, you know, making sort of light, not not, not in a flippant way, but I mean, you know, that uh, they they said, well, how do you eat now without a stomach? Do you eat like a bird? And I'm like, no, I use a knife and a fork and a plate. I don't, you know, peck <laughs> on the plate. You know, I sort of, sort of did the, the dipping bird sort of motion. And this lady called me. I should say her, her brother called me and asked if I would speak to his sister. Of course, I said yes and said, look, you saved my life. And I'm like, how in the world did I save your life? And she said... I had a very similar surgery to yours, one, the, the original surgery, and I'm having difficulty eating, and I felt so miserable and so sorry for myself that I was going to commit suicide. I'd already written the letter. I'd already bought the supplies. She was going to do the, the carbon monoxide poisoning with her car in the garage. Mm. She was going to kill herself because mm. she felt like there was no quality of life beyond this disease. And... Here she'd just randomly turn on the television, and here's this skinny guy talking about nutrition and food, and he's, you know, kind of being, you know, jovial. And and she thought, oh, my God, this guy's had, at that time, 12 times what I've had, and here I'm complaining and whining and wanting to kill myself, and this guy's out talking to people and making sure that they know that they can survive it. I have tremendous nerve damage. I've got, they've been in my body so many times. I, uh, on a cold day, I'm like half my height because I kind of, I kind of seize up, and I've got a lot of nerve damage. But you rarely ever hear me talk about that, because what good does me complaining about it do? That when I feel the best is when I'm standing in front of people talking about the, you know, sort of, you can do it. And so this lady just said, look, you know, I owe my survivor, you know, the the reason I didn't commit suicide is because you were brave enough to tell your story. And if Mm -hmm. that's not a powerful testimonial, Mm -hmm. it sort of made me feel like, wow, I've got to do more of this. And not in some sort of, you know, crazy evangelical sort of way, it's just... You know, as long as you're, you're leaving that breadcrumb trail, you're leaving a, a path that, here's, a, here's an example of somebody who did it. And yeah. you, you, I always tell people, if you look for, <laughs> excuse my language, but if you look for crap, you'll find crap. Yeah. And if you, if you look for gold, you'll find gold. You might have to dig. I'm not saying it's laying around where you're going to trip over it, but you can pretty much take any situation and find something positive in it. Even my, my daughter asked me, we were at the beach recently, and she said, uh, are you think everybody's staring at you because of your tattoo or because of your, uh, because of all your scars? And at first I said I didn't know everybody was staring at me. Thank you very much. But, um, and so I said, well, no, honey, I, you know, I don't know. And she said, well, does it make you angry knowing that if you had been diagnosed today, that they wouldn't have had to do all of these crazy surgeries and been so invasive? 
does that make you angry? And I said, no, it doesn't make me angry. It makes me proud that everybody today that goes through this, I, you know, all of these cars are sort of the, you know, a badge that means that the next person doesn't have to go through this. And she's like, I, I would have never thought of it that way. And I said, well, I didn't originally start thinking of it that way, but it, I do now, you know, having have talked to people. And so it it's just sort of makes things right, you know, when you, you can find how does this, you know, every puzzle piece, you look at it, they're doing a, a puzzle right now, Van Gogh, and it's a gorgeous painting. But when you look at the individual pieces, sometimes it looks like vomit. Mm. But that piece, it fits somewhere. And you put it together the right way, it makes this gorgeous Van Gogh painting. But when you, when you zoom into it, it looks like vomit. You know what I mean? So yeah, it, it yeah. fits somewhere. You just got to figure out how it fits, when it fits, and, uh, and, and it comes together. And make it beautiful. Yeah, yeah. You know, Hans, I was telling a friend that you were coming on the show and and about your story, and he reminded me that uh, that Beethoven was already deaf when he That's composed right. his his Ninth Symphony, and, and and it's believed that he was able to keep working because by clenching a stick in his teeth and holding it against the keyboard of his piano, he could make out the sounds, however faintly. So I just want to take a moment before we get to our uh, our next break, just to uh, I'm sure our our listeners are sort of curious about you know how does a guy with no stomach eat you know how, how are you eating how are you making recipes how are you you know how are you writing a, a you know a cookbook Does, has this affected your taste or your sure, taste buds sure. can you talk talk no. a couple minutes about that for me well and, and we'll talk more about it so i'll give this sort of cursor but i do want to go into that a little more but i um i think any chef can cook without tasting if you if you know what you're doing i don't have to taste what i cook i because you know it's just like an artist doesn't have to uh, you know, you, you, when you get to a certain level, now when you're a student, it's different, but when you get to a certain level, you, you just know that it's going to come out fantastic. And, I mean, that sounds conceited, and I don't mean for it to be. It just means that if you, if you know what you're doing, there comes a point where you don't have to constantly second-guess yourself. And so I'm, I guess I'm at that point where I know what things are going to taste like. I don't have to eat it myself. So I can still make the heavy, greasy, you know, especially German food has sometimes a, a reputation of being that, although I, I like to think that, We've taken heavier foods and made lighter versions of them, but still, I mean, I can cook the way that I was sort of trained to cook in the classic sort of heavy, salty kind of stuff. But, you know, uh, finding a way to sort of get those memories, that, you know, that nostalgia of that without maybe all the, the fat and grease and whatever is sort of what I pride myself on. But, but yeah, I mean, it definitely, I don't, um, there was seven weeks where I was not allowed to have anything to eat, no food, no water, no no ice, no anything for seven weeks. And during that time, if that doesn't razor sharp your, your focus on food, and I used to love to go sit in the cafeteria, and I'm talking hospital cafeteria food, just to be around food, just to watch others eat. So that really focused, um, has helped me focus that the meal is not just about what's on the plate. It's about the entire ephemeral experience that happens when you sit down to food. So, uh, but we'll talk more about that. So we've got uh, we've got just about a minute or so um, until our break. Can you just take a, a, a minute, Hans, to tell us about your book, Eat Like There's No Tomorrow? Sure. I, I wrote most of the prose of that book in the hospital. Again, so while mm. I was in this, you know, seven weeks of not being able to eat, it's all I could think about. You know, it's like I mean, my two-year-old daughter. I'm like, don't touch that remote control. It's the only thing she can think about is that remote control. So when they said you're not going to be able to eat, that's, uh, so I started thinking about, uh, my relationship to food, my, my history. And so the book sort of tar- started taking form uh, during the hospital stay. And I do, I'm open about my, uh, my cancer journey in the book, or at least at that point. 
uh, I'm due up for a revision because my story has changed so dramatically um, since I penned the book. The book came out, I think, in 2009, and it's, uh, it's changed quite a bit. Uh, but I, um, I'm still proud of it, of the version that is out there. We actually sold through it. We sold all 10,000 copies. Um, and uh, so that's my this year goal is to kind of sit back down and go back through my own book and, and retell, you know, reshape that. Um, but you can do it if um, you know there. If, if Beethoven can write music, like you said, uh, on the deaf <laughs> side, I think the um, guy without a stomach can still cook if he knows what he's doing. <laughs> We're with Hans Riffert today. Uh, he uh, is telling us a little bit about his book, Eat Like There's No Tomorrow. Uh, he is a chef with no stomach. He's been through uh, quite a bit through his medical journey, still has maintained a, a great uh, sense of humor and a great connection uh, to the community and a great connection to others who are going through the same uh, experience. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We have more to talk about with Hans Riffer. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Our episode today is brought to you in part by Bristol-Myers Squibb, uh, Squib, Celgene Corporation, EMD Serono, and Takeda Oncology. I'm Kim Tibaldo. Our guest today is chef and cancer survivor Hans Rufert. Um, 
I think we could we could maybe do like six shows with you, Hans. <laughs> I don't even know if that would I don't know if that would be enough. And uh, I'm I'm um, I'm feeling a little stressed because there's so much more I want to discuss with you. But I, uh, you know, I think in the interest of our of our listeners and really walking away, you know, with some practical tips, some practical uh, uh, ideas. I think for some folks, the idea of being in the kitchen, maybe trying to make some 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 healthier changes or adjustments, or even thinking about maybe picking up a pot and pan for the first time. And and really, like you said, you are what you eat. Using you know, using food as medicine, using food as a, a way to get energy and 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 heal. Maybe you could take a couple minutes to talk to our listeners about how to kind of jump in and, and do sure. that. Well, I, I you know, it's with anything that you want to master. Of course, it's, you always have to crawl before you walk and walk before you run. So don't watch these, these uh, television shows, especially some of these reality, quote-unquote reality shows, um, you know, when they're like, okay, you're going to be blindfolded on a train and you have seven of your ingredients, but that's not how anybody cooks <laughs> or anybody wants to cook, so that whole just bunk, I mean, you know. So, but I think the PBS-style shows where they are very sort of, it's an organic process and it's a snowball effect. You learn a little, and, and the great thing about cooking is you never stop learning every time that I sit down at a, at a table or I, I get to visit someone's kitchen, whether it's a grandmother or a professional chef or a five-star hotel, I learn something. You know, I learned some little technique, and what, what, what greater hobby could there be? Uh, but I think, you know, what people, they're so afraid of making mistakes, but you have to make mistakes in order to learn. And I, just to qu- share a quick story, I, I got a little obsessed with Mexican food, but particularly like really colonial, serious like Oaxaca in particular, and moles. Moles are these great sort of a sauce that's made with pumpkin seeds and and um, sometimes chocolate, chocolate yeah, garlic, yeah. and you know all these you know great oils and things. And so you know when I was starting to learn to cook, I was so enthusiastic and just thought, ah, I can figure this out. And I remembered the thing about garlic and chocolate and you know pumpkin seeds or whatever, and I made the absolute most disgusting just. And, of course, I'm thinking chocolate. I just grabbed a, a you know, a Hershey's, literally. I bought a, a Hershey's bar. <laughs> and it was so vile. And so you know, when people talk to my wife and they say, oh, it must be nice living with a chef. Well, she, yeah, it is now, but she had to endure some of those <laughs> some early things. But, you know, so what, what ended up happening there is I, you know, it's just like a, a, a dog with an invisible fence. You know, he, as you approach the, that border, you start to get a little, uh, little resistance, right? And so when you're, when you're learning these things, you've got to know what those outer limits are. And sometimes you have to hit those walls before you, you know, you, you, you learn. And I will never make that mistake again, and I, and I haven't in, in 30 years. And so, or 20 years, I should say. I've got my 20-year wedding anniversary coming up this week. Mm, so, congrats. I thank you. So uh, anyway, you have to allow yourself to make some mistakes. Now, you know, so don't start with the most expensive this. You know, start with the, you know, little not-so-expensive not versions, and you get the skill set down. But don't expect your first few attempts to be amazing. Expect them to be maybe not so amazing. And even maybe have the pizza delivery guy's number on backup in case you totally botch it. That's fine. You have to allow yourself to make mistakes in whatever you're doing to truly kind of learn the art of it. Um, so I think that's sort of the, the first thing is to give yourself permission. And then the second thing is don't rush through the prep because in my mind, the prep is part of the journey. And what a cliche that is. But if, if anything teaches you to love, appreciate, and understand cliches, it's a cancer diagnosis. And it's not about the destination. It is about the journey. And yes, I can run and buy the pre-prepped ingredients, but then I wouldn't get to listen to NPR or my favorite podcast. Or, uh, you know, so I, I put on music or I put on my, you know, a story or a podcast something inspirational in the kitchen, uh, or I put in Rafi with my two-year-old, and we're listening, we're singing the, you know, Goofy Spider song or whatever. 
and I give her a job of pretending to cut up the okra, or I give her okra with a plastic knife and see what she does with it. So the process of getting those things ready is part of the magic, and that gets everybody involved. And you know, people are always so amazed that my kids have such wide palates. It's not an accident, you know. And no, mm-hmm. and they're like everything, and they of course have the things that they naturally like and dislike. One child mm-hmm. could sleep. She used to sleep with a little bottle of, a bottle of balsamic vinegar. She loves it so much. Whereas the other <laughs> child can't stand the smell of it. But so you're not going to change things like that. But getting them involved in, you know, which lettuce do you want to use to make the salad, and they pick it out with the tongs, and they, you know, or they grow it even better. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to, mm-hmm. you know, you're involving them, and so the whole family gets involved. And so that sounds utopian to somebody, but it, it works. That's not I know it might not happen overnight, but. Um, but anyway, the process is part of the fun. So don't yeah. skip that step. You can't skip that step. Yeah, um, yeah. So Hans, let me let me ask you this as we get sure. to get to we have a few more minutes together. But I know that um, you know a lot of folks, uh, a lot of folks that we're serving at the cancer support community who are dealing with cancer, fine food and 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 nutrition. You know, there's so much in your cancer experience that's out of your control. But food and nutrition really becomes something where you can take back some control. You know what you like. You know what makes you feel better. There's this, again, greater knowledge that food can be medicine and that that, uh, food can can help, as you said, the way we feel and give us energy. So as someone with with cancer, folks are thinking about that. How how can they really use food as a tool in the arsenal as they're battling cancer? Well, of course, you know, that is such a big question because there's such a big spectrum of, of diseases and what either the side effects and all of those things. But and it's also personal. What what makes me nauseous might make you hungry, especially during that time of treatment, where you're. It's like all the dials are all messed up on the on the control panel because you know if you're going through radiation or chemotherapy, um, you know things can absolutely make you nauseous or ill. What what I found, and just a quick tip, is to have as many things par cooked and ready to go. Like if you go to a buffet or you go even Whole Foods does a great job of they have like a food bar and there's a little of this and a little of that and a little of that. And when you're not feeling well, sometimes you know. Seeing or smelling foods can either stimulate your appetite or it can turn you off. But by mm-hmm. having some of the things that would normally take, say, 30 or 40 minutes to cook, like, like your quinoa, like your brown rice, those kind of things, by having those things par-cooked and uh, ready in your fridge, when you do feel hungry, you know, don't try to stick to the you know, 8 o'clock, noon, 6 o'clock, breakfast, lunch, and dinner schedule. Mm-hmm. You eat mm-hmm. when your body's ready to eat, and you eat what your body's ready to eat. But by having some of those things of your, you know, you have a, a bit of a, like your paints are already mixed up. So when you feel inspired to paint, meaning you feel inspired to eat, you don't have to start from scratch. You, you know, when people say, what can I do to help you? Maybe you can say, well, how about having, you know, help me cook this stuff so that when I'm ready to eat, I don't have to start from scratch. So that, that has been a tip that really helped me and has helped a lot of patients that I speak with so mm-hmm. that they, when they, they do find that sort of magic window of, you know, I feel like I could eat right now. They don't have to eat 45 minutes from then. They're ready just to throw a few things together and make a quick salad or a quick, you know, you know assemblage-style meal. And that really has been my – I've been making mm-hmm. these wellness bowls uh, mm-hmm. lately where there's usually different textures, different colors, different flavors, so that as somebody is eating them, you know, they're vegetarian, they're, um, they're plant-based, so they're easy to digest, and there's little mm-hmm. bits of different textures, colors, flavors. And so someone who's going through that doesn't feel like they're just chewing their cud and eating this giant bowl of gruel. They had little bit right. of, of flavor. So I think right. that's a good way to kind of start if you're, if you're actively going through. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's uh, yeah, I think that's great advice because, like you said, you never know what's going to work, what you're going to react to. So to have some different choices is great. I I can't believe we're at the end of our show because I have so much more that I want to talk about with you, oh, Hans we'll Rufford. Do it again. And, we'll do it again. Yeah, let's yeah. let's do it again. We'd love to have you back and and uh, lo- love to. Uh, uh, certainly learn a little bit more uh, from you and, and, and chat further. And we'll, we'll also look forward to the update of your book, Eat Like There's No uh, Tomorrow. It sounds like a great, uh, a, a great project. It's really been um, an inspiring hour together. Um, I, I also want to remind our listeners that we have a host of uh, free support services available at the Cancer Support Community. We have 47 centers around the country. We have a great website at cancersupportcommunity.org. If you want to talk to one of our counselors, you can pick up the phone right now and call us at 888-793-9355. Again, if you're grabbing a pen, uh, 888-793-9355. I want to thank Hans Ruford for joining us on the show today. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo from the Cancer Support Community. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.